Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I am delighted to introduce Emily Silverman, who's our guest today. Emily does a lot of the same things that I do, so I'm really looking forward to comparing and contrasting notes with her. She's a hospitalist in San Francisco at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, and she's also a podcaster. She hosts a podcast called The Nocturnists, and The Nocturnists is is something that is near and dear to my heart because this podcast is all about storytelling, narrative, and it's pulling it out of the work that we do as doctors, which is so interesting, so exciting. And the most common question that I'm ever asked as a doctor is people want to hear crazy stories of being a doctor. So no better person to talk to about this stuff than Emily. Delighted to have her on the show. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with storytelling. There's a lot of places we could start, right? We could compare notes on what it's like to be a hospitalist. We could talk about different podcasting mics that we <laughs> use. Let's talk storytelling. I'm, I don't know the answer to this question. Here's where we're going to start. Have you heard, you've, you've heard of and listened to the Moth podcast, I would imagine, right? I have. I've even been to uh, one of their live events. I was going to say, I feel like the Moth is probably in, the, in your DNA. It's been, it's been like crispered into your DNA at this point. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was, uh, it was the time that I went to see the Moth live that the idea of putting together the nocturnus really crystallized in my mind. So I would say it was a pretty big influence on me. So are you like me where when you're seeing something cool or exciting, I, I, I struggle sometimes with being in the moment. So when I'm seeing something cool or exciting, like the moth live show, I'm not just thinking about how cool, exciting this is. I'm thinking, what does this mean for me? And what am I going to do with what I'm learning and seeing? Is that what's happening for you when you're sort of sitting there observing all that incredible storytelling that goes on? It is. Yeah. I think anytime that I witness somebody else's genius creation, there's a part of me that's just admiring it and appreciating it and taking it in. And then there's another part of me that's kind of wondering how something like that might apply to me and my job and my life. And I'm just kind of always scanning for inspiration. And something like that, I, I like the I like the term genius. I mean, the Moth Podcast, right? It is what it is because it is a stroke of genius. It almost feels like a call to action when you see something like that. There's almost that feeling of like I need to apply this somewhere. Like this this needs to propagate and it needs to be in the work that we do. And somehow we got to extrapolate some of that good stuff and and put it into our daily life because it'll make everyone happier, more engaged, more enthusiastic. Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, coming out of intern year, I definitely felt like for me, the stories in medicine were starting to get lost a little bit. A lot of that had to do with just being busy and time restrictions and, you know, coming into residency thinking I would be spending most of my time with my patients and then realizing I was actually not spending a whole lot of time with my patients, sadly, um, and spending a lot of my time taking care of them and arranging and coordinating their care and reading about them and ordering and checking labs. But the amount of time I was actually spending physically with them, talking to them at the bedside was not as much as I would have liked. Um, and then also, I find that the way that we document our encounters is just not conducive to storytelling, which is the way that, you know, humans have been transmitting information for, you know, millennia. And uh, 
I was struggling with a way to um, reignite that kind of storytelling lens within my own practice because of all of these obstacles and barriers that I saw around me. I'm smiling as I'm listening to you because when you talked about how, you know, the arc of storytelling is something that has united humankind for such a long time, for millennia, that's the sort of central dogma of Explore the Space, that we have to harvest one another's stories so that we can better understand. And it's the same linkage to, you know, the oral tradition that goes back from when we first started to kind of invent language and figure out how to communicate. So that sort of process is exactly the same work that we do here. But you have that sort of interesting juxtaposition where you're in residency, which is a pressure cooker of note. But at the same time, you're having this sort of inspiration of a way that it can maybe become richer. And then the Nocturnus is born. So first, just tell us about what the Nocturnus show and podcast actually is. Sure. It's evolved over time. So maybe I'll just go chronologically. Um, I had always been a creative person who was really interested in creative writing, literature, poetry, film, photography, kind of painting, drawing, all of that good stuff, going to the theater. I grew up around that stuff. My parents love that stuff. I love that stuff. And there was actually a point in college where I was worried um, as I was getting together all my pre-med requirements that I would lose that side of myself. And I almost abandoned the path to medicine altogether and thought I was going to pursue a career in the art world and all of that. Um, I quickly came to my senses and realized that's not what I wanted to do. And I did end up going into medicine and I had a fabulous experience in medical school. And then I came out to UCSF and UCSF is amazing. I got an incredible clinical education, but coming out of intern year, I felt like that creative side of me had been sort of on hibernation status. <laughs> um, and my, it was affecting my mood and it was affecting my ability to connect to my own humanity. And so really how the Nocturnist started was through writing. Um, I had always been a person who liked to process experiences through writing. And so the Nocturnist actually started off more as a blog um, where I would write these, um, these like things that were coming out of me. They were sort of like poetry, but also sort of like essays. I've been told that they're called prose poems, just very short snippets where I would write about things I had seen, patients I had interacted with, ways that it reminded me of things in my life. And I started posting these um, prose poems on this website and, um, you know, posting it on Facebook and had friends who would comment and things like that. Uh, and then over time, uh, I realized that I wanted to expand it more and I wanted to create a platform for my co-residents and even for faculty to share the same way that I was sharing through my blog. And I wasn't really sure what that was going to look like until I went to the moth and then it just clicked. And I was like, oh, this is what we should be That's doing. That's the way to do it. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Yeah. So, um, came back from the moth and, um, I walked like the next day I walked into the chief resident's office and there was this awesome chief resident named Tim. And we just sat down and started bouncing ideas around. And he was basically, he was just kind of, um, encouraged me to go ahead and pursue what it was that I had in mind. And so the very first event was in January, 2016 and it was small, it was 40 people. Um, and I kind of like had to twist arms to get people to show up. Um, but I was able to get eight people to stand up and tell personal stories about their experiences and their job. Um, most of them were residents, but a couple of them were actually faculty. And this was like very like protoplasm of the Nocturnist. There was no production value. There was no music. There was no story coaching. Um, everybody just showed up and what the stories were, they were. Um, 
And there was something really nice and beautiful and electric about that raw experience and got a ton of positive feedback from the audience and just this sense that there was a connection and this sense that like, oh, wow, I'm actually not alone. Like other people go through that and feel what I'm feeling. Um, and then it just snowballed over time. And two and a half years later, we sold out a 360 seat theater in San Francisco. So um, it, it just went, you know, up and up. That is such an interesting path because what you were describing sounds a lot like an internal medicine residency where, where you just kind of squeezed on all sides and some things have to give. And oftentimes it's the personal because the professional, that's what we're there for. And that's what we're trying to do at that time. Did yeah. you find though, as you've grown and as the Nocturnus has grown and obviously become more and more popular, are people that are outside of medicine starting to hear about this and are they starting to attend and I ask that from the simple perspective that people, there's an endless fascination with what we do and see as physicians, whether it's the heart wrenching stuff, the gross stuff, the scary stuff, tell me a gross story. What's your grossest story? Like we've all gotten that um, mm -hmm. and we all have those stories. Are you starting to get those people coming to these shows because they want to get connected with that incredible depth and wealth of stories that come out of being a doctor? Yes, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the general public has a fascination with the world of medicine, which is obvious just by how many medical TV shows there are out there and how popular they are. Which is funny because um, they've been our storytellers, right? And they tell the stories wrong. I know, I know. <laughs> it's so frustrating. It's, it's high time that we start to <laughs> actually right. have an authentic voice That's in the right. medical storytelling arena. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why these stories appeal to the general public. I think number one, it's just by definition, the hospital is a place of high drama. It's a place where you're dealing with life and death and big questions and strong personalities. And so it just lends itself to um, art and stories and drama really naturally. But I also think there's this kind of uncovering that happens. Like there's this, um, there's this power differential between the medical system and ordinary folks. And it's like, when you come to the hospital, it's this big, sparkling, like spaceship-like building, and you're lost, and you don't know where you're going, and you're holding a piece of paper, and you're looking around, and then finally you get to where you're going, and then there's this doctor wearing a white coat, and they're speaking in terms and slang and language that you don't really understand, and there's just this like opaqueness to the whole thing that I think can really intimidate people, um, and I think can actually foster a sense of skepticism and distrust between the public and um, the medical system sometimes. I would um, posit that what you just said, uh, you could you can take away the clarifier. It does do that, and it happens <laughs> all the time. And whether it's intentional or not, we do set people who come to big academic medical centers or hospitals or offices up to be in that weird place. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're becoming more conscious of it now, but I mean, that's a lot of reasons why I do my podcast is that we can tell some of these stories about what we see and do and the people that do it and the interesting things that come up out of it for the simple fact that in that moment, you're putting a patient in the middle of a science fiction movie and expecting them to just be able to navigate and understand that is a big, big ask. It's a big ask. And there's always this wondering, like when my doctor leaves the room or when my doctor goes somewhere else, like where are they going and what are they doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the short answer is probably sitting at a computer for most of the time. Um, but I think for the lay public, the stories of medicine, you know, whether it's through the, noct the nocturnist or somewhere else, 
it can really help demystify the whole process. And I think that's helpful from like a logistical standpoint, like people just might gain some clarity into like what the job is and what we are actually doing. But I think it also has an emotional layer where it humanizes the physician because I don't know. I, when I was a kid, I viewed my physician kind of the same way I viewed my teachers. It was like, I couldn't imagine that they existed and had lives outside of their job. Like when you see your teacher, like at the store, at the grocery or something. It's the most disorienting thing that happened to me (laughs) once my fourth grade teacher. I was like, you're, you're out in the world. I don't understand. What what does this mean? Exactly. Or they get pregnant or something. And then you're like, whoa, whoa, there's (laughs) so much more going on with this person than I thought. And I, I think that kind of um, thinking sometimes gets put on doctors as well. And I think as doctors, we're also encouraged to take on that role, that role of like polished, clear-eyed, professional, all-knowing, you know, sometimes maybe even godlike. And what I want to do is try to break down all of those notions and just remind everyone, patients, doctors, that physicians and people who work in healthcare are just human beings too. And they're human beings who, you know, do have a lot of training and are very knowledgeable and qualified at what they do, but they also have flaws and doubts and vulnerability and, um, you know, moments where they don't know what to do or moments when the personal and the professional clash in a way that can be really interesting or, um, educational or uncomfortable. And so these are the moments that I'm trying to tease out of the stories. And I think for the lay public, um, yeah, I don't know. I think some people might like the idea of thinking of their doctor just as a human being like them. Maybe some other uh, patients would rather imagine their doctor as this like perfect robot. But um, I think it's better when we all kind of treat each other as a sister and a brother. Like we're all we're all kind of the same. It seems like you have two parallel tracks. One to obviously, as you described, empower people who are approaching healthcare and meeting their doctor and going to a office space or whatever it may be, but also to empower physicians to have a different understanding of what it means to do that work and to interface and communicate and interact with their patients. And for me, you know, some of the most satisfying work that I get to do is in medical leadership because it's helping people to do exactly what you're describing. It's working with other physicians to discuss communication strategies. It's meeting with patients and their families when good things have happened. And also sometimes when they're really frustrated, it's helping our teammates understand that when we do what you just described, be transparent and say, you know what? I don't absolutely have a clear answer, but let's work together to find one. Or, you know what? I need to go back and do a little bit more research. And then I'm going to circle back with you in just a couple of minutes or apologize. Not only are we doing the right work, we're also doing things that there's good evidence they improve outcomes, that they improve satisfaction, that they mm-hmm. improve compliance. We're doing the right work. It's a big boundary, though. What you described, it's one of the biggest boundaries that physicians – it's the shield, right? It's, it's Captain America's shield. Nothing can get past it, and they don't want to lower it. They don't want to right. admit that fallibility um, or just even admit that vulnerability, whatever term you want to use – your residency program is a little bit closer than mine. I finished residency in 03. Is it something in our training? Is it something in our personalities? Is it something in the way that we're mentored? Or is it something in the way that we don't get to express ourselves? Why do we do that? It's a great question. I think it's probably a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is just the nature of the work. So, yeah. Yeah. When, you know, in our job, we are tasked with managing these incredibly um, – 
acute, hyper-acute situations, also really sad and damning situations, having to um, code someone in the ICU, having to deliver a, a terrible diagnosis. And so in order to survive, there is a certain extent of shield that needs to go up to protect yourself emotionally. And I think that balance between, you know, maintaining your empathy and compassion and also self-preservation is one that everyone is constantly walking. And I don't think anyone has the perfect answer on how to hit the right balance. But um, I think another part of it is, is in the training. I think um, there are a lot of analogies made between medical training and the military and kind of the rigid hierarchy and who you're reporting to and just the fact that you're expected to stay awake and work for 28 hours in a row. You know, it's kind of like this expectation that you are above human needs. And I think uh, there's also a pride that we take in our work. And there's also a reluctance, I think, to call in sick and to express doubt and things like that. And so I think that people talk a lot about the hidden curriculum. I think there's just a lot of subliminal messaging that goes on in rough programs. But I think even in programs that do pride themselves on work-life balance and things like that, I think there's still a pervasive subliminal message of like, you're a warrior. You just need to push through it. And, and this sense that like everybody else, all your patients, they, and their needs come first and you and your needs come last, which is why you end up with these residents who, um, you know, haven't seen a primary care doctor throughout their whole residency. They haven't attended to themselves. Um, and I think that's one of the inputs into this epidemic of burnout, um, that's happening and I think it's something that should be addressed. I think there's a lot of structural and cultural issues that needed to shift there. Um, I just don't know the easy way of doing that. I think it's going to probably be a slow process over time. Things like the nocturnists will certainly be accelerants of that process. And as you were talking, I'm kind of going down my checklist, listening to you going, yep, yep, yep. The one place, though, where I, I think I might push back a little bit is when you reference how our work is like the military. And the only reason that I say that there's actually uh, – a retired fighter pilot who has come on explore the space several times. And he and I have done a couple of pretty good deep dives into how do we evaluate team-based culture? How do we be accountable in a team-based culture and how do we improve it? And I might suggest that at least in the work that he did as a fighter pilot at Top Gun and at the very, very highest levels, the amount of transparency and accountability to the people around them was far, far higher than I ever expected. It, mm. is, it is a process where immediately after something, it is that debrief of here's what I did wrong. I'm going to be accountable because it's going to help everyone around me to get better. And in medicine, we're not great at that. Um, you know, I think you probably have the same stories, right? Getting back to stories about those morbidity and mortality reports that were just absolute bloodbaths where people are crying and attendings are shouting and things like that. I mean, these things were not normal. And that, that way that we, these things are all of a piece, right? When you see that stuff, when you're exposed to it, it, it has an impact and it will affect you downstream probably in ways that you can't really predict. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm, I'm pleased to hear that, um, your colleague had a, you know, positive experience, um, you know, being a fighter pilot, that's, that's amazing. And it just only highlights even further, you know, how, how far we have to come as a medical community. I remember a friend of mine told an anecdote of his flight being delayed he was waiting in the airport, the flight was delayed. And the reason it was delayed was because there was a shifting of the time schedule such that if they all boarded the flight, the flight attendants would break their duty hours, you know, by the time the flight landed. And so they postponed the entire flight. And we were just laughing and thinking like, you know, if only the, the duty hours of 
medical residents were taken right. as seriously as the, you know, and it's so disruptive to, yeah, yeah. to ground an entire flight of people and they end up, end up with, you know, a couple hundred people who are angry about their itinerary being delayed, but they do it because they acknowledge the importance of a well-rested, you know, crew for a flight. Um, and so I think we have a long way to go in medicine and we, there's a lot we can learn from other industries like the military and, and the aviation industry on how to promote safety, but also promote wellness. Are you seeing as the Nocturnist project is growing, you've done more and more of these live shows, you're doing the podcast. Are you seeing central themes? Are you seeing most of the stories are centered around some of the stuff you and I've been discussing, culture, burnout, lack of self-care, long hours, or is it other stuff? Is it the drama? Is it the, we had this patient and they decompensated right in front of us and we had to do X, Y, and Z. Are you sort of seeing themes? Are you seeing things that people really want to emphasize and bring to the table? Yeah, there's definitely some common threads that come out and they're all intensely personal. Uh And in fact, I, I tend to steer people away from stories that are interesting only by virtue of the fact that they're dramatic, you know, are you telling us? We don't need theme music, right? We don't need, we don't need the drum, the drum beat behind. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like every story doesn't have to have, you know, a helicopter, you know, flying in or like a code blue to (laughs) be interesting. And in fact, um, if, if the story is like sensationalized or just has some kind of shock factor, I think that probably isn't a very good story to tell. And, you know, sometimes that can, uh, walk the line of our ethical responsibilities to our patients and really thinking about intention and why are we telling this story? Is it for yeah. entertainment value or is it because we're being thoughtful and reflective about the story? And I really try to promote people being thoughtful and reflective. And really what it comes down to, I think, in every story that is told is human connection. It's, you know, somebody witnessing an event, interacting with a person that they never thought they'd interact with. And usually that interaction brings up some kind of personal issue for them, whether it's, you know, that reminded me of my father, or, you know, I thought that I was so different from this person, but actually we had this much in common, or um, something like that, that really causes the person to connect. Um, And so I think it's about, um, you know, interacting with someone and then connecting with them through something personal in your life which can be hard because you don't want to overdo it. And our, we're, you know, we're not our patient's friends where they're doctors, we're professionals and we can't be divulging every single detail of our personal life, but it doesn't have to be a divulgence. It could just be a reflection um, that, you know, this really impacted the way that I thought about, you know, my mom when she died, or this really impacted the way that I think about, you know, structural racism in academic medicine or whatever it is. Um, and just kind of drawing out these, uh, these kind of conclusions that I think sometimes people may not have even arrived at had they not gone through the process of submitting the story and being coached. I think I mentioned earlier that at the first event, there was no coaching at all. Now we have a very rigorous coaching process where people submit their stories. We select eight or nine of them, and then we pair each storyteller with a coach. And I I always joke that the coaching process is half story development and half therapy because- Sometimes you don't even really know what you're saying until until you edit it down and and you really think about it explicitly. And I think that just goes to show how um, 
telling a story can really be like holding up a mirror and forcing yourself to process and self-reflect, which is really helpful. You are absolutely asking your storytellers to do much harder work than just kind of tell them, <laughs> here's the crazy thing that I saw yesterday, or here's the gross thing that I saw. You're asking for the, how did this impact you? Well, God, you know, I actually yeah. haven't thought about this yet for whatever reason. I don't want to, I'm afraid to, I haven't had time. I'm too tired. I didn't think that I'm supposed to, whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. And you're going to obviously get the rich wealth of stories that the nocturnist is able to harvest. The coaching piece, though, that really, I think, takes it to another level. We've talked on on Explore the Space with people who do a lot of coaching who where that's a real emphasis for them. You know, Atul Gawande wrote that incredible story a few months ago about the value of coaching. I think it was a TED Talk that he gave. And in medicine, man, once we leave residency, we don't do that coaching work. We don't have coaches. We don't seek them out. There's a huge voltage drop. I think, do you think that people thirst for that when they submit their story and say, good, now I'm going to peg you with a coach? They say, oh my goodness, yes, please. Like, I, I want someone to help <laughs> me get better. Yeah, I think it depends on the skill that you're talking about. I think when it comes to um, kind of uh, dissecting your experiences and figuring out what that means for you, that could be the job of a friend or a family member or a therapist or, you know, perhaps a peer if you're so inclined. Um, but I do think that the process of coaching someone on how to tell a story is applicable to so much more than crafting a story for the nocturnist. For example, your listeners, you know, presumably most of them are doctors, may think that they don't engage in storytelling on a day-to-day -day basis, but I would argue that they do. Anytime you sit down and you take a history from a patient, you're collecting a story. Anytime that you present on rounds, you're synthesizing and repackaging and then communicating a story to your team. Anytime you write a note, your documentation, it's a narrative, it's a story. Um, and then anytime you sign out to a colleague, you're, you're transmitting the data from one person to another and kind of keeping the story going like telephone. And so we're engaging in the storytelling process all the time. And I think the skill of knowing how to construct a meaningful narrative is one that isn't taught in medical schools. And that can actually be really helpful when you're writing a note, you know, what is the context? Like, yes, this person has chest pain, but like, how is, that, how is that impacting them in the larger context of their life? Um, there's even, even some data now that shows that the way we use language and that the way that we word our documentation might impact outcomes. So there was a study where they randomized trainees to notes that use neutral language about a sickle cell patient and notes that use very subtle kind of stigmatizing language. And the trainees who read the stigmatizing notes were more likely to report a negative feeling toward the patient and more likely to uh, prescribe less pain medicine to that medication. So story matters. The language that we use and the stories that we tell, it really matters in how we frame our experiences with our friends and with our patients and with our colleagues. And so I think um, this coaching process of how to tell a story, the very basics, beginning, middle, and end, person was in their usual state of health until bam, they got chest pain. Like this is basic story uh, architecture. Um, and you have to be able to, to narrate and to communicate that in order to um, get the data across. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done in medical education and even, you know, graduate level education and how we can incorporate the skills of storytelling into our day-to-day -day practice. So is that going to be part of the future work of the nocturnist? Because you've got yourself 
right? A, a growing endeavor here. It's going to continue to grow. The demand is going to continue. Is part of it going to be to reach back to the road that we've traveled and try to be a profound influence on the people coming up behind us, not just to harvest interesting stories and help kind of defray the, the confusion between patients and doctors, but also to help improve the way we just transmit information to improve the way we can interact with our patients. Is that part of the future state of the Nocturnus? And where do you see the Nocturnus project heading as we go over the next few years? Yeah, I think um, the Nocturnus project will probably continue doing live events in the Bay Area, hopefully eventually do events in other cities. We do have an event coming up in New York on October 30th, which I'm really excited about. And over the next few years, it'd be great to you know, take the show on the road and go to different cities. I'd love to hear what kind of stories come out of the Midwest, the South, other parts of the country I've never been to. And then, of course, the podcast, which is really exciting because really anywhere in the country or the world can tap into these stories. And, and learn from them. So I think that's the direction for the Nocturnus. In terms of incorporating storytelling, skill building into medical education, that might be something separate from the Nocturnus that I pursue in parallel as I try to find a foothold in the world of academic medicine. I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how is it that I'm going to forge a career in the medical humanities. And I think storytelling is a good place to start. But I think um, the, the style of storytelling that we do on the job and the style of storytelling that we do at the Nocturnus is very different. Um, and I'm not proposing that they merge and became, become the same thing. I don't think it's going to be helpful for, you know, an intern to be standing on the wards in the hospital, like telling a Nocturnus story on the wards. It's not efficient. Um, but I, <laughs> and vice versa, I don't want That would doctors. be something to see, right? You have a big crowd <laughs> gathering at the nurse's station and someone holding forth with a microphone. That would be... <laughs> That'd be a sight. Yeah, yeah. The Nocturnus, it promotes creativity and expression and that's kind right. of um, artistic uh, license and those sorts of things. I, I don't think that that's necessary in the hospital, that's but right. I do think that we there is some space to move forward in how we communicate and tell stories in the hospital, and that might take a different a different shape. And so I do see both of those types of work in my future just more more separate. One of the other things I was looking forward to talking with you about and just sort of teasing out is you and I do very similar work professionally. We're both hospitalists. We both take care of hospitalized adult patients and we both host podcasts. I don't think there's a ton of people that are doing <laughs> those same parallel paths. How are you enjoying it? How are you enjoying being both a hospitalist and hosting a podcast and also having a life outside of these pursuits? <laughs> I really like it. Yeah. I am really happy that I chose general medicine and hospital medicine for my career. I, most of residency, I actually thought I was going to apply in rheumatology, and I do love rheumatology, but by the time it came to apply, I wasn't ready to commit, and I also just wanted to stay general, and I wanted a schedule that was flexible enough that I could pursue some of my outside interests. And I think hospital medicine has been a really great fit. Um, my schedule is super flexible so I can scale up or down and take more or less shifts. Um, can have, you know, a contiguous four or five days, um, where I'm not doing clinical work, where I can work on nocturnist stuff or my own writing. Um, so I, I find the, the life of a hospitalist to be very conducive to people who have like outside interests that they take very seriously that they want to um, dedicate time to like you with your podcast or, you know, whether, whatever it is, if it's your kids or if it's building furniture or gardening or whatever is important to you. Um, I think hospital medicine really lends itself well to that kind of life. And then the work itself, I, I really like, 
I like the acuity of hospital medicine. Um, I think patients in the ICU are a little too sick for me and patients in the office are not quite sick enough for me. And the kind of floor <laughs> patient is uh, kind of the Goldilocks zone of acuity yeah. in terms of like stimulating me intellectually. Yeah. So I really like that. And I, it's a great hospital. I have great colleagues. So, um, you know, it can get, it can get, uh, busy sometimes and that can put a strain on me, but there are ongoing conversations on how to prevent burnout, which is not unique to hospital medicine. So yeah, I, I think it's working pretty well. How about you? How do you find it? You know, I, I, I've, I've been a hospitalist since I finished residency in 06. I love it. I think it's incredibly satisfying. I remember when I went into it, people said, oh, you're not going to have any continuity. You're not going to get to know your patients. You're not going to have that sense of you know, relationship building. And that just has not ever been the case. You know, you, you forge these relationships in the crucible of somebody being ill and needing help, as you say, right, urgently at the bedside. Um, I, I love the idea that people have a symptom and we have the tools and technology to make that symptom go away really quickly. And yeah. uh, that every time that happens, every time you do something and the nausea goes away or the pain score goes down or the shortness of breath abates, it's incredibly satisfying, uh, and, I, and I absolutely love that. The opportunities that it affords are just amazing. You know, going into medical leadership, getting to interact with people from all different specialties and all different backgrounds. It's just incredibly rich and rewarding. It's also look. It shows. It shows us all to be where we are. Right. We see people at their best. We see people struggling on both sides of the coin, and that's a really big reason why I wanted to do my podcast was to. Just find interesting people that want to share their stories and, and, and recognize that we can try to close that gap doing the exact same work that you're doing with the Nocturne. It's just by sharing our stories and recognizing that across the, uh, across the boundary of you know, the bed and me standing there in a white coat or me sitting across from you in the office, that we're, we're just trying to do the same thing. We're trying to get people better. We're trying to get our communities better. We're trying to learn from one another. We're trying to provide support when it's needed. Uh, it's hard sometimes, but I love that. I love that work. And bringing these two things together has been really exciting for me. Residency and, and those times it's, it's hard to figure out how to express yourself. And this has been very, very meaningful. And I, I, I absolutely love it. And look, it affords opportunities. I get to email Emily Silverman, who's hosting the Nocturnist <laughs> and say, look, I'm doing the same work as you. You want to come on the show? Yes. It's just a, it's a blast. It's a thrill every time. Yeah, it is a blast. And um, you've got such an amazing list of people who have been featured on your show. It's, it's, I imagine that it's really awesome to be collecting, you know, such diverse perspectives and, and spreading them around. I think that's great. It's funny when, when we first started Explore the Space, the question was always, what are you trying to do? And who's your audience? And I think I would probably sound pretty unfocused because I'd say, look, it's for anyone that's going to be interfacing with healthcare and I want to try and build an eclectic group of guests and let's just see what happens with this. Because again, I, I'm not making money off of this. I have a job. Uh, this is, this is a project. This is an exercise in creativity and interest. And now, you know, almost four years in that eclectic mixture of people and opinions and ideas from ultra marathoning and leadership and coaching and other doctors and whatever else, that's the web that's really forming, right? This is, and it's so interesting. It's so exciting. And I think the Nocturnus, you're doing the same thing, right? These stories, these themes, they're all interconnected, right? The, 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 the dramatic story, the sad story, the story of self-reflection, they're all of a piece. And those pieces start to fit together and it just makes this extraordinary tapestry. And it's just, it's so satisfying and it's incredibly motivating. I agree. Yeah. I, I love uh, the fact that, you know, people, strangers, 
feel comfortable and safe emailing me these incredibly intimate narratives about themselves and their jobs. It's like, wow, where did I get this privilege that I right. get to hear, hear these amazing stories? Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. Where do people find you? The Nocturnists are online, obviously. Where do they find you? Where do they learn about what you're doing? Where do they get tickets to the New York show in October? Where do they listen to the archive? Yeah, so we have a website. It's www.thenocturnists.com. So that's the Nocturnist with an S. And on the site, you can see everything about our upcoming events. Um, there's a button on the bottom where you can hit subscribe to our mailing list. And then if you join that, you'll be the first person to know when tickets go on sale for uh, our upcoming events. We have one here in San Francisco that I'm really excited for. It's about health in the criminal justice system. Um, and we have doctors, psychiatrists, but also a lawyer and a couple of formerly incarcerated patients who are speaking. So I think that'll be really interesting. And that's on September 27th. And then the New York show is October 30th on the theme of death and dying. Um, and then for our podcast, you can just type the Nocturnist into whatever you use to listen to podcasts and we'll be there. The Nocturnist podcast, man, it is, it is rock solid. It's so enjoyable. It's, it's so much fun. The stories are incredible. And uh, yeah, just it, highly recommended in all respects. So you're doing wonderful work. It's been an absolute treat to get to talk with you and, and hear about the, the rocket ship that you're on. And it's going to go in some really, really <laughs> interesting directions. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, we look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you. It's been great chatting. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.